Well, good afternoon again. Merry Christmas. Uh, if you have a Bible with you and want to open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, that's where our text is going to be. It's also printed in your bulletin if you just want to follow along there. Um, it's the day for the angel's candle, right? And the angel's song is peace on earth. Peace on earth. You hear it a lot at Christmas. I don't know if you remember uh, Bono's cynical song about it. Uh, several years ago, he said uh, that he's sick of hearing again and again about peace on earth. I hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. And it feels like either uh, just a tease or something that is not true or just something sentimental. What does it mean, peace on earth? Because it's not our experience. It's not much different than what it was before Jesus came, as far as we can tell in most of the circumstances in the world. What, what does peace on earth mean? Does it just mean like Jesus is in favor of peace, you know, and he wishes that we would catch on and uh, stop fighting each other? Or, or is it just wishing upon a star? It's just a Christian version of, of uh, sentimentalism to say, sure wish there was peace on earth. Um, none of the promises are framed like that, though. They're not framed like wishes or sentimentality. They're framed as, as a reality, a real hope. Um, and that's what I want to argue for this afternoon with you is that uh, this promise that God is going to end oppression in the world is not just a tease, but it's a real hope. That the story that uh, all of this falls out of is true. That, uh, God created a good world and we ruined it by rebelling against him and trying to rule it ourselves. And he wasn't willing to burn the whole thing down. Uh, but instead was willing to be merciful towards us and so came to our rescue in Jesus Christ. And this child that we celebrate at Christmas uh, was destined to grow up to be the king of the world, the one who's finally going to be an, an incorruptible king who will put an end to oppression and to injustice in the world finally. That ultimately, when he returns, um, these things will stop and be not part of our experience anymore. And so Isaiah 9 talks about this a long time before Jesus was born, what he was coming to do. And so we're going to look at that passage and talk about why this hope is a believable hope and not just a a sentimental wish. And then talk about some of the difficulty we have because uh, we don't see much progress yet in the end of oppression. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that as we're here uh, to hear from you and from your word, that you would speak to us and that you would um, make us receptive where we have biases and prejudices that would keep us from uh, trusting you. We pray that you'd overcome those things and use your word uh, to give us faith in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me beginning in verse 2 of Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You enlarge the nation and increase their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And this is the word of the Lord. You probably don't really need examples of uh, this being a world of oppression, but I'm going to give you some. <laughs> so, um, Robert Lenthicum tells a story I think some of you are familiar with about a girl he knew named Eva who was a teenager who lived in a housing project where he was uh, serving as a Christian missionary on a summer mission project. And they had Bible studies, and Eva was coming to the Bible studies, a pretty young teenager. And she was very interested in the faith and responsive and uh, always there at the Bible studies and things. But uh, toward the end of the summer, she spoke to Lenticum about her experience there. And she said, I'm really troubled about something, and I don't know what to do. She said, there's a gang that operates in our uh, housing area that uh, forces teenage girls into prostitution uh, for suburban clients. And uh, they're starting to be after me, and I don't know what to do. And so he told her, well, you've you got to resist that. Don't do this. Now, it's a, this would be terrible for you. You've got to find a way to resist it. And she just kind of looked at him forlorn, and then he left pretty soon after that to go back to school. And he came back the next summer. They started back up their Bible study, but evil wasn't coming. And so he went and tracked her down to her house. And uh, when he saw her, she looked, uh, she looked really broken and embarrassed to see him. And she said, well, they, they, they got to me. And he said, oh, no. So what? Weren't, I thought you were going to try to resist and things. And she said, well, I did try, but, uh, but they were very relentless. And when I said no, they said that they were going to beat my father. And I still said no, and they did beat my father very badly. And so finally, I, I had to give in. And he said, well, I mean, wasn't there something you could do? Couldn't you call the police or something about this gang? And, and she said, who do you think this gang is? The gang was the police. Um, she's in a hopeless situation of oppression, which is not that uncommon for people less insulated than most of us in this world. And it's a world where the promises of peace and the promises of oppression ending are, are hard to believe without feeling naive. But it's the story of the world. I mean, it's when we decided to rule the world ourselves and throw off the yoke of God, um, we found out what power does to people like us. It makes us cruel, it makes us indifferent to suffering, it makes us selfish and abusive. None of us handles power well in any of our circumstances. I mean, the history of the world is the history of slavery and gulags and imperialism and all sorts of people uh, getting over on other human beings. And uh, that's the way it's always been. It was certainly Israel's story all along. They started out in slavery to Egypt. Uh, they were then oppressed by Midian, which is referenced in verse 4 in this passage, uh, where Gideon delivered them, if you remember, but they were under the thumb of the Midianites, and then they were under the thumb of the Assyrians and the Babylonians that took them off into exile, and then now, when the time of Jesus, they're under the thumb of Herod and Rome. And this has like, always been their story, more often than not. It's true on big scale politically, it's true on small scale, petty dictatorships and homes, 
are not unfamiliar to us, are they? Tyrant fathers, uh, bullies uh, at work, uh, bullies on the schoolyard. Uh, everywhere people get together, uh, people seem to use and misuse power. I was watching, I got on the documentary list on Netflix last night uh, because I'm really intellectually curious, not because I'm lame. And uh, the first two things I, I watched, one was about a yoga teacher who was abusing his power and become a sexual predator through his yoga practice. I didn't know that was like a big temptation there. And then there was one about New York City police in uh, the late 1980s, and where they became uh, basically the escorts for the drug trafficking gangs. You just, it's overwhelming oppression where you think there's nothing you can do about it when things are as corrupt at that level as they get. Uh, what hope is there for ever, anything ever being different? If you're dark-skinned and in the criminal justice system, or if you're poor and in the criminal justice system, uh, you know uh, how intractable the problems of oppression are. Even with well-intentioned people, they're very difficult. If you live south of us, 60 or 80 miles or so, you know what it means to be ground up under the wheels of the cartels uh, without any real hope of resisting their violence. So, and this all happens because of the atheists, right? It's their fault. I mean, a little bit. <laughs> Atheism can make oppression worse. Um, but so can religion. If you think about people who took Nietzsche seriously in the last century and who gained political power believing that there is no accountability, God is dead, and we can do whatever we want. It's only those who are uh, bold enough to grasp for power that will rule. Uh, well, their history is very violent and cruel and oppressive. Uh, but religion can make oppression worse, too, because religion blinds you. It makes you feel righteous. And so it makes you less self-suspicious about how you're using power. You think, oh, I'm a, I'm a religious person. I'm a moral person. Uh, I, I'm setting the standard. I'm the white sheep. And so whatever I do in the world with my power is probably innocent because I'm a good religious person. And that's how we wind up with church, too, right? Where people justify their behavior spiritually. Where you see people being coddled in church as... Uh, Men who abuse their families and say, I'm just exercising a godly and biblical leadership in my home. And it's a pretty good place to hide if you do that, is in church. And certainly the violence of holy wars and inquisitions are not uh, foreign to us, right? Because power is a human problem. It's not just a religious problem or an atheist problem. None of us can handle power. The best hope I have about oppression on most days is vigilantism. I love vigilantism. It uh, seems like it would be such a helpful approach to a lot that goes on in the world, you know? <laughs> if it worked. I grew up watching Charles Bronson movies. I don't, every time I use an illustration, I feel older. Um, in the day, Charles Bronson was, was a, a, a bad man, and he was a vigilante, and they had like six or seven of these movies, so he was always getting away with it. And, uh, but it's so delightful to think that someone could go do something uh, when problems are so intractable, but the problem is, who are you going to send to be the vigilante? You? Me? You, you can't, because we're part of the problem. We're not just some 
uh, exception to those human beings who are troubled with power. We're just like the people who are oppressors. And so self-righteousness blinds the vigilante and corrupts the vigilante because power is our problem too. And vigilantism doesn't work because of that. Really, anytime you think human beings, we're going we're gonna to rally together and put a stop to oppression. You know, come join the revolution. We'll throw the tyrants and oppressors off their thrones and we'll have the reign of peace and justice of the common man and whatever else. And any kind of, any kind of revolution like that to stop oppression winds up creating new oppressors, right? Here's the blurb for the Animal Farm book for next month. Um, you know, it doesn't take too long before all pigs being equal turns into two legs good, four legs bad. And some pigs are more equal than others. One said, when the revolution comes, we'll all drive Rolls Royces. Someone said, well, I don't like Rolls Royces. I said, when the revolution comes, you'll do as you're told. Right? And so there's the pinch. Right? We hate oppression, but we're complicit in oppression. And Jesus' plan in the world can't be, I'm going to get the goodies to go stop the baddies. Right? Because there aren't any goodies to go stop the baddies. Um, the point isn't to get the good people to stop the evil people. Whenever I hear people quote that Edmund Burke uh, sentence in political matters, you know, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. I want to think. The, the problem we have in the world is that you think you're a good man, right? We're, we're broken people, and that's the reason the world is broken, and we're not the solution to that problem. Um, prophets complained about this loud and long. If you read Old Testament prophets, if you know the countries, it would probably mean more to you, but like every country gets sent up over and over again for being oppressive, for the way they treat the poor, for the way uh, they are violent, and their wars for the way that they enslave people. It's a constant refrain, but it's not just the nations out there. It's Israel, too. It's God's own people. They're accused by Amos of trampling the faces of the poor into the dust of the earth. And so you can't say it's just, it's just the bad people doing this. And it's not just a matter of laws. You know, you can fix laws so that you can uh, stop people from abusing power. You can try to. Uh, but Israel had lots of laws like that. They had gleaning laws, you know, where you, wouldn't, you, you couldn't harvest your fields right up the edges so the poor people could come uh, and have food. They had usury laws so you couldn't charge exorbitant interest on loans and oppress the poor that way. Had a year of jubilee that apparently they never celebrated, but they had it, the law for it. Every 50 years, land would be returned to uh, the families that originally owned it. They had a lot of protections for refugees and aliens who lived in their midst. They were required to be hospitable, required to show them the same protections of law that they did to Israel's own citizens. But it was never enough because laws don't fix you. Right? It doesn't matter how good your law is. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned your legislators are. Laws can't fix what's wrong with us when it comes to the problem of power. And that's why our hope is not in laws or ourselves, but our hope is in a person. It's the Christ child who is born, the one that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 9, this child who's going to be born to be a king and end oppression. That's where our hope is, a king that isn't corruptible by power, 
Um, and only Jesus can be that. And it says he'll redress oppressors. In verse 4 and 5, he says he'll break the yoke off of our necks and break the rod in the hand of the oppressor. He'll put an end to it. And that he'll rule, he says in verse 7, in justice and righteousness, not corrupted by power and concern for uh, genuine justice being done for people, the kind of king that we need or long for. The weird part, though, is that um, when he came, no one, he, didn't, he wasn't what anybody expected. For one, he was a baby. I mean, Isaiah mentions that it's a child who will be born, but you know, I would have passed over that if I were 700 B.C. reading it. Wouldn't you? I thought, oh, nativity, manger, it's all coming clear to me. You know, I, would, I would have said, child, whatever, there's going to be a king coming. That's the point. But he comes as a child in this odd way, not with any armies and things, uh, because God had created a way to end oppression without ending you and me. He's going to end oppression without ending you and me, because if he just comes to stop people who abuse power, then we're all in trouble. We're not just being rescued, we're being stopped, if that's the case. But instead, God comes and himself subjects himself to uh, oppression. You know, he had his reputation ruined by people in power. Uh, the religious leaders, political leaders said things about him, and you can't. You can't control your reputation when powerful people, especially religious people, start denigrating you in public. He experienced that kind of oppression. He experienced being poor. He experienced being arrested and being a prisoner. He experienced being a refugee in the flight to Egypt. And he experienced the judicial murder of the cross, uh, which is ultimate oppressive injustice and abuse of power, killing the one innocent man that's ever lived. And all of this he's felt from the inside. And I don't want you to miss that. It's a huge deal that we have a God who feels what we feel and has experienced what we've experienced. He is empathetic to us in a way uh, that no man-made religion ever conceives. Um, he's not separated from us that way, but feels what we have felt. And in his mercy and in his plan, God, instead of coming to crush us to stop oppression, he crushed his own son. All that we deserve uh, because of who we are and the way power affects us and the way we behave. All that we deserve from God when he comes to establish justice, he's poured out on his son Jesus instead of us. And instead is the key word there, in our stead. Instead of us receiving what Jesus received, he received it. And uh, that is uh, it's remarkably generous. It's also beautiful because um, what other hope do we have? Of God accepting us. But what we see in the life and death of Jesus is that God is willing to forgive us. And he's willing to bring us home. And he's willing to love us and welcome us. And that's why we get sappy at Christmas singing about this. Is because um, it's really pretty hard to believe that this is God's attitude towards us. That he really wants us. That he doesn't despise us. Uh, that he's not... He's not um, under any romantic notions about how good we are. But he still wants us and has found a way to bring us home. So that's our hope, is that Jesus is going to end oppression. But when? <laughs> it's been 2,000 years, and not much is different, right? Oppression is still the order of the day. When? Why has nothing changed? I don't think we have... 
much of the answer to that question. Honestly, we have some of the answer to that question. The New Testament reading we had in First Peter um, was it's interesting to me because Peter was being really hard on people. He said they're going to be scoffers that come later on, and they're going to say, "Where's the promise of His coming?" You know, things are going on just like they always have. Nothing's different. And and he's really mad at them for being scoffers. And I was thinking, I kind of understand that. <laughs> That's how I feel too. Like, boy, it's been a long time. And are are we are we being naive to keep hoping that Jesus is going to come back and establish justice and create recreate the world so that it'll work again? But what Peter said is part of the reason God delays is to give you and me time to get right with God. He said, I'm giving people time to repent, time to uh, get right with God, which is sweet, really, when you think about it, that the delay isn't because he doesn't hear the cries of the oppressed or doesn't care about the plight of people who are suffering an injustice, but he cares about us and wants us to have time to be right with him. And that's very kind. So that we could receive mercy from Jesus now rather than receiving justice from Jesus at the judgment day. And that's a Christian hope. Here's the problem, though. Um, I really debated thinking about who you were, whether to use a Shakespeare illustration or not, but I decided to go ahead, giving you the benefit of the doubt. From Richard III, you may be familiar, some of you are very familiar, but maybe familiar in the, the speech of Richard III, Richard says, now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. So this is Richard's complaint, the winter of our discontent has been the rule, the rule of Henry IV. Uh, Richard and his family have suffered under this rule. Finally, um, he's deposed, and Richard's brother Edward now takes the throne. It says, this winter is made glorious summer by the son of York. My brother Edward is now on the throne. And for Richard, that's great news. <laughs> because, one, they're delivered from the uh, oppression of Henry. But Richard wants the throne. He doesn't want his brother to have the throne. I'm glad that we got rescued from Henry, but I don't want to be a subject of Edward. And so he wants more of a Beowulf deliverance um, where someone comes from overseas, kills your enemies, and goes home. And then you get to live your life the way you want to live it, free from oppression, right? That's what you want. But Jesus comes and says, I'm going to free you from oppression. I'm going to put a stop to your enemies and to your suffering. But I'm staying and I'm going to rule. And that means that you're going to have to abdicate your throne in your life uh, for me. If you're having hope in me, you're having hope in a real king and it's not you. And so it always makes us a little ambivalent. We think I want the deliverance Jesus brings. I don't I'm not excited about his meddling in my life. Even though I've made a wreck of my life trying to run it myself, I'm still suspicious that he's not going to do as good a job. You know, I'm still nervous about that. And I think most of us are. Right? Um, because I know this baby that's born at Christmas is calling me to abdicate the throne of my life. And I never really go willingly. So this delay is supposed to be for our good, right? To give us time to repent. That doesn't mean it's easy it's still awful, right? It's still awful to live in a world of oppression where so little that's done in abuse of power ever gets redressed at all. Um, it's easy to lose heart and become a cynic 
or just not hope very much. If you only look at your circumstances, you only read the news, you're going to lose heart. Because it's not like you see all these real positive signs of things popping up and things getting better and better every day in every way. It's not true. That doesn't happen for us. But that's why Christians don't just look at our circumstances. We look at Jesus. And especially during Advent, coming up to Christmas, we look at Jesus and we read these pretty dramatic promises over and over again to each other to say, look, this is a well-placed hope. Um, It's true. We don't have evidence in our circumstances. We have evidence in the promises of Jesus that he's going to come and put an end to this. And so what it does for us, and this is subtle, but I think it's important. It changes our complaining. So instead of saying, why is the world like this? Our complaint becomes, how long are you going to let it go on like this? Why is the world like this is the complaint of unbelief. How long are you going to let this go on is the complaint of faith. Right? That's how Christians pray. This is not okay. How much longer? Instead of saying, are you even there? We say, when will you come? Or the old ancient Christian prayer is Maranatha. It's Lord, come quickly. That's uh, the Christian prayer. We're not ignoring the injustice. We just have a different hope for it. And that's the hope that propels Christians out to protest against injustice, to push back in things, you know, push back their Christian agencies working on sex trafficking and prison reform. And uh, Christians working in law enforcement trying to push back against what's broken. Christians go out to give comfort and care to people suffering under oppression. Hospitality for refugees, Habitat for Humanity Homes, prison fellowship, visiting prisoners, foster care. You you know firsthand, I bet, a long list of things that Christians go out in the world to do because of our hope that it's not always going to be this way and that Jesus is going to end oppression. So you're sick of hearing about peace on earth? Um, Does it make you bitter? It should, probably. (laughs) But if you can say uh, how long instead of why, you'll be in a good place spiritually. Because our hope is real. Uh, The child did come, who is a king, who's not corruptible by power. And he's going to put an end to oppression. Let's pray.